Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Week in Review. Uh, now, the last few weeks have really been a bit like a game of, of musical chairs where we've been swapping guests uh, every two minutes, but um, you'll be pleased or disappointed to know that I'm back uh, leading the podcast. Um, but at the same time, Luke Perry, maybe connected to me being back, has gone. Um, but we've got a very worthy replacement today with Peter Tutikin. Peter, how are you? Hello, I'm very well. Uh, glad to be here. Good, I'm glad you joined us. Now, Peter, for those who don't know, is our associate editor. Um, that's his formal title, but uh, us insiders call him the, the token lefty. Um, he's been involved from the very beginning with a good old uh, Birmingham friend, so we're glad to have him on. Um, and we're joined, as always, as well by SD Wicket. Sam, how are you? Michael, quite literally, as always, I, I haven't missed an episode yet. Oh, that's true, actually. Is that, that's, a, that's a snide dig, that was, wasn't it? Well, it's because I, I have to edit it, so I have to be involved. So. That's true. You're always involved in some way, um, which is good. Now, given that I'm back, we will uh, start with a story on COVID, um, which seems like a, uh, a bit of an, a mandatory topic each time, especially when I'm here. Um, it's been a mixed week, really. There's been some good news and some bad news. The, the good news um, isn't actually yet confirmed, but it seems increasingly likely that uh, regarding COVID passports, which have already been sort of disregarded for, for pubs and, other, uh, and restaurants, such venues, and that they also might not be required for venues uh, like cinemas, um, theatres, other events like that. Um, and that the, the only places where vaccine passports might still exist are, I think one of them was strip clubs, um, which was, uh, the, the Sun was delighted to report uh, this morning, um, as well as possibly larger events for which there'll also be um, caps on attendance numbers. So that's, that's partially the good news that the, the story on vaccine passports continues to wane. Um, but at the same time, Whilst we've got some unlocking happening um, on Monday, which is, what is it, the third step on the lockdown, when we're allowed to go indoors in pubs and things like that, um, we're increasingly uh, hearing rumours um, and hearing of new sage discussions that the grand unlock on June 21st, when apparently all restrictions will go over perhaps than the masks, and as I say, caps on uh, numbers at certain events, um, the 21st deadline might not be kept due to the threat of the Indian variant. So, as I say, it's been a bit of a mixed bag, um, but still, I'd say, uh, leaning slightly on the on the negative side. Um, but, Peter, we've, we've not had you on before, so we'll go to you first to, to see what, how you feel about the, the current situation regarding COVID and, and the handling by the government. Uh, well, it's a shame you come to me first, because, honestly, I... I've tried not to pay too much attention to it lately. Right. Um, I mean, it seems to me that, well, certainly with the Indian variant, um, I mean, we should point out that cases and deaths in the UK are still at record lows. And yeah. so, so far, there hasn't been too much reason for panic. Um, I mean, in terms of the Indian variant, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think from, from the limited amount of what I have been able to gather, uh, it seems that the government has, surprise, surprise, messed up its quarantine and uh, test and trace system, mm. um, the latter of which has been kind of an ongoing disaster since the start of this pandemic. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I believe that they are going to try 
um, and kind of toughen up the measures right now. But I'm, I don't know what more they can do, considering, I mean, we're already banning all travel from India. Um, yeah. I, get, I, mean, yeah. The, I think the the point that they, they want to, that they're sort of hinting at, especially through SAGE meetings, is that um, rather than any measures changing from this point on, because as you say, India is already on, on the red list and anybody who arrives from India is supposed to quarantine for almost 10 days. And I'm it's sorry, only UK but, citizens who can come over. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Um, the only thing that really is being suggested is not a change now, but rather the, the extension of what's happening now. Um, I mean, one of the, the ideas in the pipeline is that there might be regional lockdowns again. I mean, the last time we had that in December, I think 99% of the country quite literally was under the, the toughest two tiers and only less than a million people yeah. were, were under the... Well, eventually, we, yes. I mean, that's that's how it ended up briefly yeah. until we went into national lockdown. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, in, in terms of, I mean, in terms of return to region lockdowns, I mean, I, I think it'd be quite a, a weird situation for that to happen again. Um, I mean, I mean, c c considering how we've had it implemented already twice and it's never worked. Mm. Um, don't every, yeah, well, every, every time the government has tried to implement a, re I mean, I don't know, I think whichever side of the COVID lockdown debate you fall on, I think we can probably agree that the regional lockdown thing has been probably a worse idea than the national lockdown because it seems that the regional lockdowns have always just ended in national lockdowns. Yes, yeah. Due to how ineffective they've proven. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Sam, what's your take on it? The, the threat of the, the Indian variant then, as it's called? Well, so here's the thing. And um, I've sort of had it sort of drilled out of me to, to sort of take things at, at face value, really. I think, no, the... Um, so there were, you know, there, there, there were there horror footage coming out of India um, a few weeks ago showing, you know, um, just a complete breakdown of the health system in India. Um, it is important to note that um, was it there was, it was like four hundred thousand cases in that surge in India, in India, which in a country of one point three billion people is, a, is is still a drop in the ocean. It's still sticking. It, it is probably a severe undercount, though. Possibly, but it, it is still sticking within the proportions that we already knew about we have a bad habit on the show of missing out on major stories like in the first episode we, we missed out on the trump ban um and there's a press conference today at 5 p.m so we'll see how this really affects government policy um for, for the time being i i, I um there's been a, it's been a few cases where, where a variant has popped up and it, it's dominated the news cycle for a couple of days and nothing much has really happened so um the system we have where you know you can't enter the country from India unless you're a British citizen, in which case you still need to quarantine. It's, you know, it's, I think it's probably enough to keep, to keep it um, at our population. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure what more the government can do, except for, you know, make sure its test and strike system is working properly to ensure that, you know, the cases that are, are there in the wild can be properly contained. Mm. I mean, apart from that, it seems to me that the best thing the government can keep doing is just keep vaccinating everyone. And hope that this variant doesn't prove to be much of an issue well, uh, in terms it. of do you, do you recall when there was the south african variant and it was narrowed yeah. down to like seven people who could have it and they found the person and they, they isolated them i mean the so there's there's cases in is it lancashire that uh, of the uh indian variants um so you know it it, it can popping it, up in a few areas now yeah, few areas, but, but you know it, it can still be be, be contained. But you know, uh, time, time, time will tell. 
I think the, the point on the variant, you know, we, we ask whether more measures can be introduced, but another question is whether they need to be. Because as you know, as you said earlier, Peter, I mean, one of the points is the vaccine rollout. Um, I think nearly 20 million people now in the country have been fully vaccinated, never mind uh, having received one dose. And the, the figures for one dose are even more impressive. Um, and we know that the vaccines, or at least have no evidence to date, which suggests otherwise, uh, that the vaccines do protect against this variant uh, and other variants, as well as um, the, the original strand of COVID. Um, and as you also mentioned, cases and deaths continue to fall despite the you know popping up around the country of this and other variants. So the other day in England, Wales, uh, sorry, England, Scotland and Northern Ireland, there were zero deaths. There were just four in, in Wales, I believe, which meant there's a national total of four. In other days, we've seen two, one on one day, even 11, very, very low numbers. And yet I think the seven day average is about 10 right now. Yeah, it is. Which is uh, considering the the toll which continues to be um, inflicted on the country by the measures which continue to exist, um, with the lockdown not having been sped up despite the the better data, um, really does make us raise questions as to whether the threat of the the variant is as big as we're being told it is. And I, I, given the fact that cases and deaths remain low, that the vaccine is successful against the variants, as we've been told numerous times, um, I think it suggests that we don't need to extend lockdown, especially beyond June 21st, and that in fact we can uh, continue with the idea that the government proposed at the very beginning of the whole roadmap, that it can be sped up. I mean, it certainly seems right now that there is no reason to suspect that we should postpone, you know, the full unlocking on, on June 21st, uh, no. just, just, uh, just over a month away. Um, yeah, I mean, unless I mean, unless something drastically changes, I think it's just a matter of you know keep calm and carry on with the uh, with the vaccine program. And I mean, in terms of uh, you know how effective the vaccines are against the Indian variant, I mean, it, it should be, you know, as you've said, we have no reason to suspect that they aren't. Um, and it should also be mentioned that the very same vaccines that are being distributed here are also being distributed to fight the the outbreak in India. Mm. Mm. Are there any documented cases of this new Indian variant leading to uh, deaths in the UK or or anyone being hospitalised? I'm not sure that they've managed to count it down to the Indian variant in particular. I, I'm not sure whether something like that would be documented anyway. It's something that would be reported by the press if they knew about it, but not something that would be specifically well, noted, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it would be wall-to-wall -wall coverage if, if someone died of the Indian variant. Yeah, well, we'd, be, we'd have to fully lock down again until at least June next year. New Zealand style, yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's as I say, a bit of a mi mixed bag on um, on COVID stories. I, I mean, we've we've heard more reports of what's been happening over the past year rather than things going on now. It's only just coming out for some reason, um, at least in the, the mainstream press, that um, a lot of women during pregnancy have been forced by their hospitals to wear masks, meaning uh, not only is the the suffering that they're going through during that time. You know, strongly exacerbated by the useless face mask in that situation, but also the, the the first thing the child sees is a face mask, which I think is quite a striking image in terms of uh, just how far we've gone over the past year uh, with these measures. Um, coupled, of course, by the fact that uh, the 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 woman's partner wouldn't have been able to stand by his side for a large part of last year. Um, so I think a lot of the things which have happened under the under the guise of of COVID. Um, uh, response are things which in 10, 20 years time we'll look back on and be horrified by, um, which raises another point which we can briefly go into with the COVID inquiry. 
What do you think it is that uh, when this takes place, apparently beginning next year, the inquiry will actually look into? Will it look into the whether or not lockdown should have been enforced at all? Or will it simply be a matter, as has been drummed up in the press, of whether or not lockdown should have been inflicted earlier rather than at the time it was? Well, it, it depends on, on what the people behind it want to do. Do they want to get to the bottom of you know the, the collateral damage caused by lockdown or do they want to provide cover for the government? I don't yeah. know. Well, I'm not, I'm not even sure they want to provide cover for the government. I've, I imagine one of the main points of the inquiry, which actually at this point I just don't care about, is corruption. You know, oh, look, uh, we, we need to highlight the fact that Matt Hancock gave this um, contract to this person who we knew because of this reason and, and wall-to-wall coverage of this, which really is nothing new. This has been happening for decades. And the, the irony is that the people who would report on it would themselves likely be tied up in the corruption in one way or another. Um, but I think what the, the really important point is, not just on a sort of small macro political sense that only people at Guido Forks cares about, but on a wider level, uh, that is, you know, where we'll be as a country in 10 or 20 years time, whenever the next uh, pandemic comes about, uh, the, the thing that needs to be looked at is whether lockdowns were important or effective in the first place. Well, it, it, it depends where they want to look. Do they want to look at New Zealand or do they want to look at Texas and Florida? There are there are successful cases of, of you know either, but it just shows that you know the pandemics are, are different in each country. It's different. Each country has its own you know geographical and and um, context and and it has different rates of you know international flow. Um, it's not particularly fair to compare us to say New Zealand, which are both you know island nations because they're quite remote and we're not. So it yeah it, it it's um it it has to look at purely context of the UK. You know whether the damage to the economy, to um, people's civil liberties, to ed- the uh, standards of, of education, to mental health was whether or not it was it was it was worth it to mitigate a virus, which comparatively has quite a low death rate compared to you know other milestone pandemics. Mm. Absolutely. Well, having, I think, mentioned uh, some civil liberties and also earlier having talked about COVID passports, I think we can go on to the next topic, which is yours this week. And it's uh, it's featured heavily in the press as well and been a bit of a talking point um, over the week, which is the possibility or the likelihood now of ID being introduced for voting. It's an issue that I've been grappling with um, internally since I sort of decided to cover it. Um, I, I genuinely am torn. I, I, um, I sort of you know, made an internal pros and cons list and, and it's kind of... It, almost balances out in a way but there's the, the, there's a there's a knee-jerk moral reaction to not wanting um a society where you need to show papers to justify an action uh, show, show identification to justify doing something like voting or just partaking in society um with that said you know th- there is a deba- there is a debate around um the legitimacy of elections where you can just turn up and vote you don't need to prove that you're the person who's you know legally voting um other people who um have basically voted instead of their parents uh, by just saying it was them um so you know the, the system you know we have you know it easily allows someone who's who's who can just sort of you know can turn up um and vote without their name particularly being on the register however there are very few cases of voter fraud in the uk like very yeah, very, very few it's 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 um 
well, it, it sort of feels like a like an importing of again of, of American issues where that that that's a hot button issue in, in the US, but it's not really here. Like ID cards were defeated in the Commons what 10, 10 12 years ago. During the coalition government, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah during the yeah that, during the coalition government, and um, something something funny that I saw was when the Queen opened Parliament, she spoke about um voter ID cards. Americans sort of leapt on it. Uh, sorry, American uh GOP sort of leapt on it as if that was the queen coming out and saying we need voter ID when you know obviously she, she didn't write the speech she didn't you know curate yes I think I think I think the restriction we really need is to stop American journalists from having takes on British politics and the British constitution <laughs> if they if they if they can't even understand that it's the queen's uh it's the queen's uh duty to read out the government's legis legislative agenda yeah but that's not here or there but yeah, the, it's 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 basically akin to the uh, State of the Union address, but without but with with a conduit speaking, right? Um, and also, yeah, the the monarchy is obviously apolitical. It's um, well, what do you guys think? Do you think it's um, in order to be sure that people are voting legitimately, they should have to carry ID with them? Well, I think. Well, you mentioned. Uh, I mean, again, I think the first thing that. I mean, you touched on it briefly. I think the first thing that needs to be mentioned is that the actual documented rate of in-person voter fraud in the UK is astronomically low. It's it's much lower than, say, in America, where it also is astronomically low. Um, I believe in the last general election, there was only one uh, case of, of someone uh, being convicted for voter fraud offenses um, in terms of in-person voting. That was, um, that, that was the that was the that was a, a Peterborough by-election, right? There was there was something. I think this was the last general election. Although, okay. I, which, whichever way you spin it, the the rate of in person voter fraud in the UK is insanely low. And but what some people will say uh, in response to that is, well, it's documented very low because we're not detecting it. Because how would you detect it? Yeah. Um, um, and I, I think there people just have to use their common sense and realize that in order to actually commit voter fraud in the UK. Um, even though it's theoretically possible, it is so insanely inconvenient and on a personal scale will not influence anything that there is no reason for anyone to even try. Mm. I, I, I mean, it, you know, just make a thought experiment of, you know, let's say, Sam, you and I decide to uh, rig the next UK general election. Right. Uh, we both walk down, to, we, we, we both drive over to our nearest marginal constituency. Um, with the uh, names and addresses of two people who we know live there. Um, we stand in the line, we get to the uh, clerk, and then we pray and hope that the people we're trying to impersonate haven't already voted. If they have, we either A, go to the back of the queue and try again and hope no one notices, or we drive over to the next constituency and try over there. I mean, the, 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 the very notion of that is so fundamentally absurd. Yeah. And that's, and that's, and by the way, we would be going through all this trouble and potentially risking, you know, a criminal offense. Um, in order it, just to just to you know add two votes to our favorite candidate, right. in, in order for something like this to actually affect any election at all, uh, it would have to be conducted on a massive scale, which you would not be able to organize without someone noticing that something off is going on. Um, so no, I think that that's the first thing to notice that voter fraud in the UK is just astronomically low. Um, I mean, you were mentioning the the, the pros and cons. Um, I think the only pro of voter ID is that it satisfies an emotional response. Um, but in terms of practicalities, I don't think it makes any sense at all. I, I think, you know, if you want to come in from a civil liberties perspective, I think any measure that makes voting harder, no matter how trivial you think it is, uh, needs to be justified very thoroughly. Mm -hmm. um, we had voter ID trials uh, a couple of years ago here in the UK that were done in, I think, about 10 local authorities. And um, 
if you extrapolate the amount of people that were turned away in those voter ID trials, that would equate to, I think, about 140,000 people not being, into, being able to vote UK-wide. Right. Now, 140,000 people not being able to vote probably won't, be able, won't swing an election. Um, but it's also 100,000 people uh, versus one documented case of voter fraud. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I, I should also add that that number would probably be significantly higher if voter ID is introduced, and it looks like it will be on a national level, uh, because the trials were conducted mainly in suburban, very white uh, parts of the country. Whereas, as we know, the kind of people least likely to have photo ID would probably be, tend to be uh, ethnic minority voters in, in urban areas. But so the, I, I, either way, even if you take the lower range of the estimate, which is about 140,000 people being deterred from voting uh, because of this, it, it, I, I think that you know, taking away the vote from that many people, in effect, is hardly justified uh, by the actual amount of voter fraud in the UK. Yeah. And also, Sam, you said you said uh, there's the initial knee jerk reaction of people not wanting to show ID to do things. That was my initial reaction, um, although I, I suppose knee jerk characterizes most of my politics. But that's, I think that's a, a legitimate point that why, especially as Peter just said, with something um, that goes against uh, or at least is a question within a civil liberties debate that needs to have the, the, the greatest level of justification for it. And there needs to be a large problem to justify it in the first place, which doesn't exist in this case. So you have to ask, what is the point of me going and showing documentation to be allowed to vote uh, in that sense? It's, it doesn't make any sense. There's also a, a social appendix there where any, any measure that um, in effect tells people that they aren't trusted, that they need to prove something in order to have this privilege, that they aren't trusted to do that. Well, that, that just, again, it, it takes more trust out of society, you know? Um, we, we sort of, we're very gradually becoming an increasingly low trust society. And this just sort of, you know, adds to that. Although I should add one of the, uh, well, one of the justifications that the government used for bringing this in is that people need to have more trust in our elections. And if, since you, you know, mentioned trust, it should be added that our electoral process is one of the, one of the most oh, trusted, it's uh, one of the most efficient, accurate, I mean, uh, we maybe first past the post isn't perfect, but yeah. yeah our, but, our, but, our, but, our, but in terms of the actual uh, process of voting itself, I think the last survey had a, that somewhere around eighty percent of people thought that it that it was fair and safe and works very well. Well, well you have you have a vote one day, and uh, unless there's like a hung parliament, you have a new government the next day. It's, it's, it's sure. Remote. I mean, I, I mean, the, like the pro the like the, the process of voting itself, not necessarily of the counting and reporting, but sure, yeah, yeah, still. I mean, I, th I think the more the more interesting question to ask in terms of uh, voter ID um, is why is the government doing it? Mm. Um, because it's surely not to combat fraud, which they surely must know barely exists enough to warrant a mention. Um, and it's probably not because they think they're going to get some great electoral advantage out of it. Um, yeah, because the kind of... Sorry, sorry, go ahead. Um... Yeah, well, well, I mean, I said, like, yeah, if you... First of all, let's say that, you know, 140... 40,000 people that get, again, lower end of the estimate, but let's say 140,000 people that get disenfranchised as a result of this. Let's say the vast majority of them are, are labor voters. E even, even then, uh, that probably won't be enough across the whole country to swing an election, especially considering uh, that the kind of people is most likely to disenfranchise would be people living in safe labor seats anyway. Mm. 
Um, also, the, the government is already very secure electorally. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, like you have to, you you have to wonder if it's not if it's not for direct electoral gain, then why? And if it's not actually to combat fraud, then why is it? Um, I think the answer probably is that uh, this is another you know quote unquote culture war kind of topic that they've decided um, uh, to take a stand on, partly because uh, they think it's going to make the other side mad. But also. Yeah. They've imported it because it, it, it is, you know, it was a Trumpian and slash, slash GOP talk, uh, talking point, right? Well, it predates Trump by a very long time. I mean, Democrats and Republicans have been arguing about voter ID for, for ages. And, you know, in some parts of, you know, in some states they have it, in some states they don't. Republicans try to, you know, introduce it in more places. Democrats try to get rid of it. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, seem, it seems that the government is just trying to create this kind of wedge issue where, whereby they know that because of kind of the emotional uh, kind of arguments that have been presented over time, which lead people to mistakenly think that voter fraud is very plausible and, you know, and well, you know, why shouldn't you need to show your photo ID to vote if you can, if you need to show it to collect a parcel from the post office, which by the way, isn't actually true. Um, um, so like, yeah, so be, because of kind of that emotional response that inhibits, like the government probably knows, the Conservative Party knows that a, a, a large part of their core vote supports this idea. Um, and if they can get the opposition, you know, to bang on about that instead of something else, that's probably a win for them. Well, it's, it's an easy way to look tough, isn't it? Which is yeah. one, of the, one of the things the Conservative Party loves to pretend to be um, on crime, uh, on all things that the, the left disagrees with. It tries to look as though it's tough against. Um, so... Yeah, I think it's, as you say, it's a, an example where people are, do get quite emotional about it, but there isn't really, it's not a hotly contested debate in the UK before anyway. So it's a, it's a very easy topic to sort of suddenly spring a stance on because it's not like it's been a, a decade long debate, which they kind of uh, suddenly hammer down on. It's something which is very rarely discussed in this country, which they brought out, gained a negative response from the other side. Uh, and made themselves look as though they're the the, the tough arbingers of common sense. Um, well, it's it, it, it's like it's like you were saying in the past, Michael, about how when the, when the police sort of harass members of the public for you know benign COVID violations, right? Well, it's, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it, it's an easy victory. You don't you don't need to. You, you have you know the the positive stats. You have the arrest figures, but you don't have, you aren't actually because it, it's easier than actually going out and stopping like muggers and and rapists and murderers and everything. That, yeah, well, not, not only because it's easier, but also because the Conservatives don't really want to be tough on, on the other things, because it, it doesn't believe that uh, a, a particularly strict criminal justice system is a good thing. Uh, it prefers ideas of, of rehabilitation, uh, you know, whether or not they're, they're right is a different matter. I, I happen to believe they're not. But um, the fact that the Conservative Party, which ought to come down on, on the same side, doesn't. Um, is quite telling, uh, but it, it tries to it tries to ignore those matters by pretending it will be tough, um, followed by doing very little on it, um, and by as Peter says, drawing more attention to the smaller issues which usually don't matter, and in, in a in a real sense don't matter as well, since it's going to make uh, very little difference in terms of um, tangible impacts in terms of elections. It's it's merely a question of of looking as though they're being active about an issue which doesn't exist. Hmm. Well, sticking on the topic of elections, uh, last week in my absence, you, Sam, uh, Luke and 
and Brad Goodwin had joined, you talked about the uh, local elections. Um, but at the time, a number of results hadn't come in. So I think it's it's worth us talking about some of the uh, remaining results, of, such as the mayoral election results, as well as um, the fallout since. Uh, so Peter, one of the one of the elections which I think was announced just after uh, the recording took place, which is our look at the weekend review, uh, was the London mayoral election. Now, you, you told us about some of the people you voted for. You, you not being tied to a party, you had a bit of a range. You, you weren't interested, however, by Lawrence Fox. Why was that? Um, I don't know. Well, some, you know, it's just, is it, I must, it must have had something to do with the, the 5,000 articles that were written about him in the mainstream press just didn't quite grip me. <laughs> um, in the end, I think he probably... Uh, probably got more uh, more articles in the telegraph than he did votes right um but um i mean i mean I, you know it, 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 in all in all seriousness i mean in terms of him I, I think the only thing worth saying is um i think that a lot of you know when we talk about kind of the westminster press bubble uh you know i think it applies to kind of right-wing candidates much as it does about uh the other side in terms of i, I think there's a lot of people who probably have to look at themselves and say is it you know, wh why did we give this guy so much attention uh, when he came, when he, you know, he only got 1.9% of the vote and came behind uh, some YouTuber with no political background? Um, One of this YouTuber's uh, policies, by the way, was just to demonstrate his kind of platform was to lower the price of Freddo's down to 8p, which I... I, I remember the days of 8P Freddos and, and would like to go back to them, but I'm not sure that I'd vote for that as a, a key concern for London mayor. But there Wasn't there something about telling Boris Johnson to go away? <laughs> oh, right. Actually, I've changed my mind. I am voting for him. <laughs> oh, a bit like that. Not that you live in London. Um, no, regardless. I mean, I, I, think, I think there's quite a lot of reflection that should be done about like how we promote kind of fringe candidates who end up going nowhere. Um, when, um, you know, a fraction of that media attention was given, for instance, to uh, Sean Barry, the Green Party candidate, who I didn't vote for, disclaimer. Um, but it should be worth noting that, you know, with a fraction of the coverage, she managed to uh, come third with 8% of the vote. And apart from uh, Sadiq Khan and um, Sean Bailey being the only person who actually kept uh, their deposit. Um, All right. Is it over 5% to keep the deposit? Uh, yeah, yeah. Quick note on 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 Lawrence Fox's campaign. I the only time I really saw it was on Twitter and in like occasional YouTube adverts. And I have to say, for a, for someone whose background is in acting, he's not a very good speaker. No, I mean I was I was quite flabbergasted when I uh, first couple of weeks ago I actually I actually heard him like give one of his yeah. one of his speeches. I mean, look, he he's he's got virtually no gravitas whatsoever. So yeah, I, I don't I don't know I don't know why anyone would actually want to cancel his speech. <laughs> that sunlight is in fact and all that yeah um but i mean was hartley paul announced when he talked last week sam or was it one uh, of those it, which... it, i think it had become very clear that the tories were, were going to gain hartley paul um i don't think it was pretty nice. and I, I don't think the the sheer size of the tory victory in hartley paul was accounted for i mean you know um it, it was almost an really. Really. the tories just hoovered up the the brexit party votes that denied them the seat last time around there were there were labor sources saying even during the count this isn't going to be close i mean it's easy to say after the fact that it was inevitable and perhaps it was um certainly if you trusted literally any of the opinion polling that was done in the constituency which i tended 
melted because constituency polling is historically unreliable. But regardless, it, it wasn't a huge shock that the conservatives won in Hartlepool. Um, whether it's inevitable, well, I mean, I, I think the point that's worth mentioning is even when you account for the entire Brexit party vote, uh, and even when you account for stuff like, you know, the so-called vaccine effect, this is still not a seat that Labour should be losing if it hopes to win the next election. Yeah. To that effect, in the next election, if Labour wants to get anywhere close to government, it will have to win back seats like Hartlepool. Mm. And all those Brexit party voters, or the, I should say former Brexit party voters, will still be there. Um, and it's going to have to find a way to, um, to win them back. I mean, the other thing, it's not just that the Tories hoovered up uh, all of the former Brexit vote. It's also that the Labour vote fell by nine points. I mean, the Tories were going to win regardless, um, but that meant that they won by 23 points instead of, I don't know, well, a, perhaps but, a much a more, a more modest margin. Sure, but but if they if they want to win back uh, working class Brexit voting seats in the northeast, it's probably not a good idea to send a a metropolitan Remainer to contest a seat. Right. So, so that, that's the first problem is that Labour. Well, I mean, you can, I mean, I don't, I don't know how much the candidate was the issue. I mean, technically, usually candidates, you know, in by elections and at general elections, I mean, they don't tend to affect the, the actual result that much. Yeah, I mean, hardly, so. hardly pull was a seat that Labour could, you know, run a golden retriever in, you know, 20 years ago and still comfortably win it. Yeah. Um, I, you know, also like, you know, if, if you call him a, you know, metropolitan whatever i mean well i mean he's he's actually he was actually far more local than the conservative candidate who they basically shipped in from the canary islands um but but that, that's not here or there i i think i think i think the reason labor lost hartlepool was probably not to do with their candidate who you know to be honest wasn't great and certainly didn't have much of a message um but i, I think the rot there runs far far deeper i think one, one of the points which i found interesting which uh toby young mentioned on lockdown skeptics it was sort of post-election analysis analysis rather um, is the point of the NHS. Now, historically, Peter, you being one of my fellow uh, political science students, as they called it, um, historically, one of the main sticking points against the Conservative Party, one which always resounded, which Labour would always turn to as a final hammer blow, this is why you need to vote for us, not for the Tories, was the NHS. Um, but over the past year, I mean, it's, it's been lowering in terms of just how uh, salient that was in terms of an anti-Tory message over the past few years. But I think over the last year, through the COVID era, uh, it's been completely demolished because we've essentially had um, a year of NHS adverts um, on newspapers, the television, of course, through the daily briefings as well, but even on bus signs, um, on the radio, everywhere saying um, about the importance of social distancing, the importance of receiving vaccines, the importance of mask wearing. And what Toby said, which I think is a, a very uh, reasonable point, is that whilst the messages themselves are fairly neutral, apolitical, you know, get vaccinated, wear a mask, whatever, um, the implication is itself quite political because what the, what the adverts are saying are, if you wear a mask, you are saving lives who is it that's telling people to wear the mask? It's the government. Therefore, what the advert is saying is this government believes it's important to save lives through doing this and to save the NHS. I mean, the, the banner, Dominic Cummings, of course, being the, the guy who came up with the Protect the NHS slogan, uh, that's no coincidence. He knew how to win over sort of the Labour heartlands. He came up with the 
uh, all the Brexit slogans. He's always been in the background. And again, here with the Protect the NHS message, he's of course did it on purpose as a way of completely battering the idea that the Conservative Party wasn't for the NHS. And I think that presents a problem for Labour in the future, because if the Labour Party stands up and says, well, don't vote for the Conservatives because they don't support the NHS. You, you've got the small points like the the NHS worker pay rise, which is a you know sticking point against Conservatives. But other than that, people say, well, hang on, the Conservative Party saved the NHS. They made everybody wear the masks and wear the vaccines, which we were told was going to protect the NHS. So I think the 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 messaging in that regard has not only helped in this election, but will help to continue to help them for years on end. Yeah, I, I certainly think that's true to an extent. I mean, the, you know, the government has the pandemic has given them a very good opportunity to, you know, champion the health service and put their yeah. entire kind of messaging strategy around protecting the health service, which in that kind of environment, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty hard to paint the Tories as, you know, the party that wants to destroy the NHS, no matter how hard Labour will try, no matter how true that is. Um, I, I think one thing to mention is that Labour's monopoly over kind of the NHS as a political issue um has been faltering for a while before yeah absolutely um probably since the blair years um you know they, while labor usually did kind of score higher than the conservatives on that issue it, it has been narrowing for for quite a few years um and um and uh, I, I think I think it's clear that Labour can't really rely on it as much as it used to. Um, I mean, especially in seats like Hartlepool, where there's actually a very interesting problem for Labour, um, which is that largely as a result of central government cuts, their local health services are collapsing and are forced to cut back services and so on. Um, however, according to a lot of people actually living there, well, they've been voting Labour all their lives. I mean, they've had a Labour MP uh, since the 1950s. Um, so they keep voting Labour, but their local hospital keeps getting worse. Um, and um, I mean, if it, it, it's, I mean, it's interesting how this kind of psychology works. But I mean, if you can watch a lot of interviews with, with kind of vox pops from uh, from Hartlepool, where people say, "Oh, well, you know, you know, we've been we've been voting Labour all this time, and our local hospital's still collapsing." And uh, um, Obviously, a lot of people jump up and say, well, that's because the Tories were in power all this time, you know, uh, which is might very well be true. Um, but I, I, but it doesn't kind of alleviate the issue for the Labour Party, which is that the parts of the country that have been sort of, you know, quote unquote, in decline, um, you know, they were they were in charge there. Um, yeah. Well, not, not in, well, in charge there as a as a local MP. As a local MP, yeah. So they, so yeah, they they almost have to to answer for it. And I, I guess there's only a certain amount of um, times you can say, well, it's because of central government. I mean, the, the other the other the other issue is, um, um, of course, in Hartlepool, you had you know only had a kind of very popular conservative mayor uh, in Tees Valley, uh, but also uh, but also I think the conservatives have done a very good kind of. Um, job of low-key saying um you know to places like the northeast that hey if you want investment you should elect conservatives i mean it's 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 um if you look at kind of seats that the conservatives won at the last election there are some of the places that have attracted the most uh, the, the most investment from central government and obviously you can go out and say that's a very cynical bribe i mean new labor did it as well uh but um yeah i mean that that that, that that's also true i think i, I think in places like hartleypool there is um there is a lot of um, people who will think, well, you know, maybe if we vote conservatives, you know, we have a conservative government, maybe we'll get more investment from central government. Yeah. Um, I, I certainly think it's a factor. I think there's a lot of factors about why 
flavor lost hartley pool um i i don't think any of them are really gigantic enough to explain it on their own i mean i think what really kind of explains it is, is just one of the many seats that the labor party has been declining in for a while um and will continue to do so and unless something quite remarkable happens yeah well well one more maybe one more question we'll go on to from that uh one of the elements um which has been discussed in the media as to the the cause of the defeat for labor is the labor leader Keir Starmer how much do you think uh he is involved in labor's defeat Sam what about you I mean there's there's been a lot of fallout hasn't there over the past week with um the blame being pushed around different people within the Labour Party, different people being demoted, promoted, cut out completely. Um, people basically trying to point the blame elsewhere. How much do you think it does lie on Keir's shoulders? Do you think him remaining is a problem or well, is it not much down to him? The, I think the, the biggest problem of Labour um, in the party itself as like a, you know, as a, an instrument is, is internally there's a lot of chaos between the, the soft left um, under Starmer and the sort of Corbynite wing. Um, I just uh, another thing with, with, with Starmer is that there's 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 nothing really memorable about him. You know, like politics is is essentially a a, a version of show business, and you do need to have a, you know, a gravitas and a, an image to to kind of you know get ahead. And it, there's just there's just nothing really to him. It's just it's just as shallow as it sounds. He's just quite a boring person. Um, also, he he can't really decide what what direction he wants to go in you know he's um in the last year he sort of flipped back and forth between you know very socially progressive platforms and and you know talking about you know flag forces and family he, he sort of he can't really make his mind up and i think people can, can see through that and see that he's not really a really he's, he's a politician right there's not really a lot of consistency to him politically well i, I think say with boris now i don't believe this is true um but people at least know where he, uh, shall we say, pretends to stand. Um, he is uh, pro-Brexit, uh, although he's not. Um, he is pro-tough uh, law and order, pro-borders, all these things. None of which that he actually is. But in terms of perceptions, people very much know where uh, they think he stands. But when it comes to Keir Starmer, as you said, you're right, actually, that's a good point. You know, all of a sudden, Keir Starmer's pushing out this messaging that we need to focus more on the flag. Well, that obviously makes people realise that it's not something they were thinking of before and that perhaps he's not saying it because he believes it, but because he's trying to find a position on which uh, to gain support in areas like Hartlepool. And I think because of that, people don't see his his footing as being particularly firm in terms of his beliefs on things like patriotism and mm. and uh, immigration, I suppose, which stems from that. Um, whether or not all of this is true when it comes to elections doesn't matter since they're all about perception. I mean, I think the flag stuff is probably the wrong thing to focus on. I mean, I, I think it's certainly true that Labour has a, especially fully the Corbyn years, has a huge problem with being identified as kind of an unpatriotic party. And I don't think you, I don't think you can really fault them for trying um, to turn that around. You can certainly argue whether they're uh, they're doing it, going about it the right way. I mean, certainly, certainly their campaign in Hartlepool was basically like mentioned that our guy's a doctor and drape English flags everywhere. And certainly that didn't work. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so, so let me let me clarify that. I wasn't saying, you know, Starmer was um, trying to regain the patriotic, you know, um, platform. That, that's what I'm saying. The, what I'm saying is that he's, he's made sort of very conflicting statements on, on the matter. Um, that, that's what I mean. And that, that um, 
it's a symptom of, of his sort of you know sort of chameleon like nature um but very very lazily done i, I wasn't saying you know um sure sure yeah no I, th I think the bigger i think the bigger uh point there is actually what you mentioned before that um which is yeah like people don't really know where he stands and what kind of what the general message that labor is trying to tell the electorate is i mean you know what's the big story that they're trying to tell about the country and yeah. and where we're heading and where we should be heading um i mean it's interesting because you know starmer originally if you remember his leadership campaign last year was it was very much like you know i think someone described it as the 2017 labor manifesto but in a suit um <laughs> um but yeah, yeah, yeah. which which was quite you know certainly for the labor membership it was very compelling because it effectively unified the left and the soft left who are who, yeah. who were Keir Starmer's you know base effectively um uh, you know the kind of that left soft left alliance in the labor party um however since becoming leader I mean especially most recently I mean uh he's he's you know I, I don't think it's wrong to say that he shifted quite substantially to the right um but again and, ostensibly because you can't really tell with him no, but I mean, like they've they've certainly been stopped being a lot less vocal about kind of the economic populism that uh, that he initially championed in the during the, his leadership campaign. He's brought back, I mean, um, a, a lot of uh, I mean, I mean, also if you look at kind of staffing, really, I mean, uh, kind of a lot of um, left uh, leading people that were brought in uh, to the leadership following his leadership campaign uh, have left or are leaving, uh, and are being replaced by in some cases, old relics, you know, of new labor. I mean, Peter Mandelson apparently is now back yeah. running around uh, in labor HQ. Oh. Um, so, you know, the, the, this this is certainly seems like a very different Starber leadership than the one that was uh, promised during the, the leadership campaign. Um, and and it, seem, it seems a weird position for Starmer to take, certainly for his, if anything, for his political survival, because, you know, um, you know the, the right of the Labour Party, that, that that's, that's not his base i mean his base was an alliance between as i said between the left and the, and the soft left um and uh it, it doesn't strike me as very good kind of political instinct well do you think then that, that, that he sort of um realized that that's not a, an electorally winning formula it, it might be what he what he came to it might be what he what he piggybacked to win the party nomination but to win a national election i think you you do need to essentially have that kind of blue laborish platform like that that's for, for that's sure winning formula i mean maybe may, maybe maybe uh but i, I mean uh, but as as you said i mean it's it's hard to tell what what he is currently trying to do mm -hmm. um i mean it's it's not like he's ditched kind of the the more uh, lefty stuff and replaced it with um with more kind of blue labor tied with kind of blair era economics i mean he, he hasn't done that either i mean he's, he's like and that, that's kind of the problem like nobody really knows um where labor kind of stands at the moment you know jeremy corbyn is disastrous as he was um you know at least everyone kind of knew where you know where he stood on the, um at least in terms of kind of the, I don't know, the philosophical spectrum for lack of a better term yeah no absolutely um well i think on that note we should recognize also we are where we are currently which is at the end of this episode um, and I'm, I'm grateful for you all listening today and grateful, uh, Peter, for you for joining us. Um, and thank you, Sam, as well. And we'll be back again for another Week in Review next week. Thanks all.